All right, everybody, here we go. Let's do this. Episode 30, we have arrived at the Dirty 30. And it's always a safe zone on this podcast. I'm always very honest with you. So today I'm going to share some scary things. I'm going to share some dangerous things with you right out of the gate. And then we're just going to rant about a bunch of shit. How about it? I recently had the revelation, a true realization of who the scariest people are in the world. And they are Marin moms who are late to a soul cycle class. If you don't know what soul cycle is, allow me to explain. It is a fitness cult with exercise bikes. And I could tell you a lot about soul cycle because I've done it one time in my life. Once. And it is not for the poor. It's not for the middle class. No, no, no. It is for the elite. It is for the wealthy people. It's about 34 bucks a class, and then you got to rent shoes for three bucks. And then you probably have to pay for uh, Aquafina. Or no, they have smart water because only smart people will go to Soul Cycle. So in the end, you pay about 40 bucks for the workout. That's too much. I know it's obvious to say it, but that's too much. So I've done it once in my life, and it was good. There's nothing to criticize, it's really good, actually. There's somebody in front leading you, and they are your spiritual guide. They are your cult leader, your guru, and they're going to say motivational things throughout the entire experience to keep you reaching for the stars. I liked it. It's way out of my price range to actually do it regularly, but I liked it. And I was the guy in the class looking around wondering, wow, how do they all know what to do? How do they know how to make their shoes click into the pedals? How do they all know when to chant and scream at the right time? And it seemed like everybody knew when to sing along with the loud songs that they play and they get the room real dark and they get the room real hot. And I stood out like a sore thumb. What does that even mean? It's very cliche, a sore thumb. I could do better. I stood out like a um, canary in a koi pond. Not bad. Like a Labrador in a lion cage. Okay. You can see I'm going with animals, but I, I stood out. I was not the norm in that room. I had a lot of questions. And my puddle of sweat pretty much sent a message to everybody that I'm not in the shape for this. I am in a slippery puddle of my own sweat and I am torturing myself through a soul cycle class. So I've done it and I understand the type of people it attracts. And all I mean by that is people with money. But I also know that the scariest drivers in America are the moms in Marin County who are late, just a little late to their soul cycle class. They are wild. Forget stop signs. Forget red lights. They're coming at you quickly in their Audis and their Porsches and their Mercedes. And they don't give a fuck if you have a baby with you. They're coming at you. They don't want to be too late for the class. They could have left a little earlier. But you don't want to cut into coffee and croissant time on the mountain. So they race down the mountain to slum it up at the bottom strip mall where a soul cycle shines bright. It's a beacon of hope for all of us trying to get in shape. Even those of us that don't go to soul cycle, we like that it's there. We like that it's there in the neighborhood. It's a symbol of glory where the rich people come descend upon us from the mountain. This sounds like a book. This sounds like fiction, but in a weird way, I think it's true. And they descend upon us and they do not abide by our traffic laws. And I've seen ambulance drivers who are more timid on the streets than the Marin mothers who are late to soul cycle. 
I feel like in a weird way, I'm promoting SoulCycle to the point where some of you listening may be like, all right, I'll try it. I kind of want to try it. I recommend it. But also why I'm bringing it up is because I just watched a terrible Amy Schumer movie called I Feel Pretty. And I feel like I love Amy Schumer so much that I'm just going to watch every movie she ever does, even if her career ends today, which it might. That's how bad I Feel Pretty was. But even if it ends, I'll say, you know what? She tried her best with these comedies because she started out pretty well with Trainwreck. And then she did another one with Goldie Hawn, I think. It was okay. And then this one was just collecting the paycheck. It was so bad. But part of it was SoulCycle. Amy Schumer was the Josh Rosenberg in her SoulCycle class. Clearly did not fit in. Didn't know what the hell she was doing in that room. And everybody else is in such good shape. In a weird way, it's inspiring to work out in a sea of people with abs and good skin and bright smiles. And none of them are worried about affording the next class because they probably have a year-long membership. But I was the Amy Schumer, or Amy Schumer was me. And if you see this terrible movie, I Feel Pretty, the Soul Cycle scenes are really good. So it was relatable. I felt like, all right, she's capturing the true essence of what it's like to be the black sheep in a Soul Cycle cycling session. And I also realized that that workout is not for me. Biking altogether. Exercise bikes? Still seems very 80s, the old exercise bike. I feel like there were a lot of exercise bikes at the homes of my friends in the 80s or Nordic tracks, or something from TV that you could order, or the bar. Do you remember the bar? A chin-up bar, but then you would get these strap boots, and you would hang yourself like you're a vampire or a possum and do, like, vertical sit-ups. Does that make any sense? Weird workouts of the 80s. That's what this podcast should become. The Nordic track. Holy shit. But the exercise bike, it's never fun. When I go to the gym, I never go, yeah, I'm going to do 30 minutes on the bike. I just feel that seat digging into me, digging in, digging into that area that I don't need to be dug into. I don't even think I like bikers on the road. I don't even think I like these people with their GoPros and their tight, tight shorts, giving you their hand signals, coming at your left, coming at your right, trying to stay with you on the road. Please respect me. I'll respect them, but come on, aren't they a little annoying? A little bit. What was I getting at? Oh yeah, scary things. So those are the scary people. The Marin Mom's late to Soul Cycle. I think some of you can understand that. Others might have no clue what I'm talking about. But how about this? This is something I just discovered today. Baby toys that are low on batteries. Has anybody experienced this terror? Once again, baby toys that have like some recorded voice. You hit the button. It's like, it's a happy pizza time. You hit the button, it's like, we're gonna dig a hole. You hit the button, they're talking about animal sounds, talking about seasons, mostly educational things. My daughter has a baby remote control that's a bunch of mice rapping hip-hop, and one of the lyrics is, sorry, we're out of time. What do you mean you're out of time? Why don't you just record a longer rap? The rap is only 11 seconds. And that mouse didn't seem to have any lyrics. So one of the lyrics is, dee dee beep, we're out of time. But that's not scary. What's scary is her favorite toy, which is this toolbox, battery-powered toolbox, which has a British lady's voice. And the British lady goes, whirling, sliding, tapping, turning to. And it's fun. It makes my little baby smile. And she just pulls the little lever. And the British lady says, whirling, sliding, tapping, turning to. 
but we didn't replace the Duracells. So this morning, and I brought a prop in to record this podcast. I brought a prop for you. This morning, here is what I heard. And I'm going to warn you. This is scary. Picture yourself in the other room. Maybe you're in the kitchen making breakfast. Baby's playing on the carpet. And all of a sudden, you hear this. circle are you kidding me that's fucking frightening holy shit just heard that from the other room and i came in and i saw that little baby scared there was no smile oh no there was no giggle just the look of true terror in my nine months old eyes oh boy i might not even get new batteries i might just say this is going to be a learning lesson this is how we process fear Even playing it just now. Gave me the willies. Gave me the chills. All right, let me step away from that for a moment. Just a little moment. Here's how far we have come in the world of journalism. This day in history, today in 1835, it was the great moon hoax. Now it's 2018, so of course, a lot of time has passed since 1835. That's a long time ago. But in 1835, the way people consumed news was the newspaper or word of mouth. I don't think I'm forgetting any mediums. Newspaper or word of mouth. You weren't about to verify something or confirm something with your smartphone, obviously. There was no Twitter, no Instagram, certainly no TV radio. People would get the newspaper. Yet, this, in 1835, this day in history... The New York Sun newspaper back then put out four days worth of articles based on a hoax that were not true, even a fake byline. Dr. Andrew Grant telling hundreds of thousands of people that there was a famous astronomer who went to Cape Town, South Africa, got a new telescope, and all of a sudden found that there's life on the moon. As the articles went, there were fantastic animals like unicorns, two-legged beavers that were very furry. Winged humanoids resembling bats. These articles offered vivid descriptions of the moon's geography. I'm just reading this from history.com. Complete with massive craters, enormous amethyst crystals, 
rushing rivers and lush vegetation. This all printed in the New York Sun in 1835. It took two months for this newspaper to tell people none of that was real. It was all made up. Now, this whole newspaper was part of the Penny Press, trying to appeal to a wider audience for a cheaper price and give people a more narrative style of journalism. But if that's all you have to consume the news, think about how wild that would be for your brain. The inability to verify anything. There can't be a hoax today. Like a true hoax would last seven seconds. Occasionally you see a celebrity death hoax. And then one minute later, it has been disproven. Happens all the time nowadays. This hoax lasted a couple of months before the New York Sun finally revealed, all right, we were kidding. None of that was true. As the story goes, readers were completely baffled and taken in by the story. Did not see that it was satire at all. It even caused Yale University scientists to come to New York to try to find the writer of these journal entries and really discuss, what the hell? You saw unicorns with your telescope in South Africa? So when they admitted the articles were a hoax, people were generally amused, it says, and sales of the newspaper did not suffer. All right, let's fast forward to 2018. You try to print something like that, something like The Onion publishes, people don't even buy it for one second. Our imaginations, I think, are limited nowadays as well. You just fact check, fact check, fact check, fact check. If anybody tells you a story that kind of sounds like bullshit, you just get out your phone and you try to verify it right there. We all look for accuracy immediately. If you can't remember a word, you go to your phone, you get the word. If you can't remember a detail of a certain historical account, you go to your phone, you get that detail. I kind of liked when our memories, and this probably is even before my lifetime, of course it is, when people just had to either take something at face value, buy it, or maybe just use your imagination. Even doing this podcast, when I have a weird thought you know, about how does this work? When did this begin in society? Why do we just accept this aspect of the world? Then I Google it and the answer is right there. And I go, oh, I'll sound dumb if I try to explore this on the podcast. I mean, I still do, as you've heard in the past. I try to find some remedial things, you know, still retain that childlike awe in the world. Ah, oh, how does that work? We should never lose that. But these phones make it too easy to just get the answer and then we're not blown away. That's why I love this story. 1835, the great moon hoax in the newspaper. People must have gone nuts. That was all they had was that story. There's unicorns and beavers on Mars. Go figure. Think about how many family dinners were discussing these articles in a legit newspaper. And sales of the newspaper didn't suffer. That's also an aspect that's wild. If there was a newspaper today that printed four days worth of bullshit basically lying to readers, they would fold. Nobody's going back to that. You got to prove your credibility. You got to prove your reliability. It's basically the only goal of journalism. Give readers some truth. That's why journalists are under fire now. People are so skeptical. We're just getting some bias. We're just getting some left or right bullshit. Who's pulling the strings on this publication? People view journalists nowadays in such a cynical eye. That's why I've never been happier to teach journalism. And I just read that as well. There's a rise in student journalism right now in high schools and colleges because people want to combat what they see the Trump administration attacking. The press. The press is a great avenue to have a successful democracy. And if the press is under fire, that means you need better people all over. You need more dependable people reporting the news. And in a weird way, you need more people trusting the news. How do you get people to trust something? 
Credible writers, credible reporters. Let's cultivate a new generation of that, huh? This just became a motivational speech. Who's coming with me? We're streaking through the quad. All right, as always, I'm just going to jump around. Here's a few other topics I was thinking of. Follow me on this one. Outsourcing aspects of jobs. I just say it like that's the headline of a thought. Outsourcing aspects of your job. So here's an anecdote to get me to what I was thinking. Uh, When I was hired by a radio station, I think in 2010, the Mighty 1090 down in San Diego, when I was hired, the program director who hired me was so inept that he actually hired somebody else to evaluate me. The guy didn't know how to evaluate me with his own ears, with his own mind, with his own intuition or brain, so they hired a consultant. So every two weeks, I would get a letter or a rundown assessment from somebody I've never met, somebody that's never met me, and they would listen to one segment a week of my radio show, and then they would critique it. And I was thinking, huh, this is a weird way to be assessed in the workplace. I did a four-hour show five days a week. And this consultant would listen to a 10-minute sliver of my radio week, my radio work. And that's how he would assess. Well, Josh, here's what you need to work on. I'm just an empty suit giving you my analysis from Florida, which is fine. I mean, anybody's trying to make a buck. It's fine if that's his business to analyze radio hosts around America. But what does that say about my boss, the immediate boss I had, the program director? Says he's not good enough to do his job. We need to work on being better at doing our jobs, our specific jobs in this country. You like when I add in this country, it becomes so much heavier, so much deeper, but it's true. I see this in every line of work, people outsourcing aspects of their job that they should really just do themselves. If you're going to be good at your job, try to become an expert. That's not to say you disregard all of the help you can get. Okay. There's a big difference. If you seek assistance, you research things to get better at your job. Maybe you go to seminars and workshops and you study, study, study morning, noon, and night to perfect your craft. Whatever you do for a living, whether you're a doctor, an attorney, a teacher, a chef, an accountant, whatever you are, you have probably received emails in your inbox from a company, not spam. It's kind of teetering on, is it spam? Is it junk? Or is it a straight up email? Somebody just offering you their services. Hey, let me help you. Hey, let me help you. For $9.99 a month, I can offer you this. I can offer you that. I can offer you this and that. Enough. As a teacher, I get three emails a day. And once again, this is not to say I resist the resources coming at me. But it's all these resources like, here's the proper way to teach about world history. Here's the proper way to put together a high school newspaper. And they know what I do for a living. You know, I'm in some database where they could just send mass emails because this is the profession they're aiming for to help trying to make a buck. But at some point, you got to say, no, I'm good at this. No, this is what I can do. If you're a chef at a restaurant right now, you should know how to make recipes. You should understand ingredients. You should strive to become an expert when it comes to cooking food, making food. And if you check your email and they're like, hey, you want to know the secrets of making rice? You want to know which pan you should be using when it comes to sauteing onions? You, as a seasoned veteran of the world of culinary arts, should delete that damn email. I'm saying it right now. I hereby declare we need to start deleting those damn emails that are trying to help us with our jobs. That could be taken one of two ways. A, I'm overly confident. Or B, 
I feel competent enough to delete those emails. Is there a C? Capable? Confident, competent, capable? Is this a mantra? Sometimes I get caught up in my ABC when I'm making a list and I forget what I already said. All right, so here's the key to understanding what I'm saying. A, you got to have confidence. B, wait, what was A? Maybe this will be the part of the podcast that you tune out. I assume that every podcast I do, you tune out at some point, right? And then you come back. Does anybody out there actually listen to the full half hour? There's got to be one chunk of this where you're like, wait, what was he saying? Who cares? Just keep listening. Just move on. Hopefully it was that part. You know, when you thought you had a point and then it comes out of your mouth and you're like, yeah, you know what? I kind of tiptoed around it. This is the self-deprecation portion of the podcast, but you get what I mean. You get it. All right, it's story time. It's episode 30, so I have a story. Not like I didn't have stories in previous episodes, but stay with me. All right, I finally have reached a point in my life where I'm not really watching a show. I only have 3,000 channels. That's a waste of money. I need to be a cord cutter. Have you heard about these cord cutters? They just stream their TV. They don't actually get cable or satellite. Soon I will be a cord cutter and just go with Hulu or something. Hulu, which actually does stream sports. But for now, I have all these channels and I don't watch anything. Except, yes, I watch Hard Knocks on HBO because I care so much about what the Cleveland Browns are doing. That's weird. They package it so well that I do care about the Cleveland Browns every Tuesday for an hour, and then I don't again. But there really is one watchable show on TV that I've caught a few times. I wouldn't say I'm an avid viewer, but I've caught it a few times, and it's called Roast Battle. Oh, yeah. Roast fucking battle with who? Jeff Ross. All right, it's story time. And the basis of this story is not, hey, how cool am I? There will be aspects of this story that come off that way. Hey, how cool am I? But Jeff Ross is awesome. And most people just know him from the Comedy Central roasts. And what does the word roast mean? It means you're insulting somebody, but it's kind of playful. It doesn't mean you're using fighting words. It doesn't mean you're saying anything that's so controversial that you're so worried about feelings getting hurt. It's more ball busting. Hey, we're roasting each other. So he's the roast master general. And I even read his book, like a how-to guide on roasting called I Only Roast the Ones I Love. And Jeff Ross, who used to be Jeff Lipschultz, but way too Jewish sounding. I'll talk about that one day. All of the Jewish celebrities that have felt the need to change their names. I did the same thing. I used to be Josh Rosenberg and Steenowitz, and I had to shorten that. I had to make it more palatable for mainstream Americans to listen to me. So I just made it Rosenberg. You'll never know I'm Jewish. But Jeff Lipschultz, who changed his name to Jeff Ross, grew up in a catering family in New Jersey. And he has a tragic story, actually. Lost his parents. Sister passed as well. He was like an orphan by the time he was 18. So he was drawn to comedy, maybe as a survival mechanism. Just let me see smiles. Let me see laughter. My world is getting dark. So he created smiles and he created laughter and he became a successful comic. But he didn't exactly find his niche until roasting. So I will fast forward this story. He was on tour with his stand-up comedy, playing different venues around America. And when he came to San Diego, he was playing the House of Blues, which is a great venue. Not really great for comedy, but it's a great music venue. The House of Blues, downtown San Diego, and the Gas Lamp. So Jeff Ross's publicist or whoever gets in touch with my producer. And it's a phone interview. So I don't even meet him during the interview, which is how most radio interviews go. And he calls up, and I had just read his book. 
and I was clearly a fan of his. I'd seen him perform. And I think he could tell because the first question I asked him was, how does an insult comedian come off so likable? Because he does. There's just something nice about Jeff Ross. He's saying really mean things, but he's likable. He can't help it. He absolutely can't help it. Some people are like that. They're just born likable. We all know somebody like that. They're easy to forgive. And it was a fun interview. You know, we talked about his life, his career, his show. And you could tell he wasn't just one of those celebrities trying to rush through it because he had another radio interview to do. He was giving us the time. So right afterwards, I think my producer talked to him and he invited us to the show. Hell yes. So we just simply were going as audience members, my co-host, my producer and I to the House of Blues. And then when we get to the venue, we got there pretty early to have a few, to have a few. My producer, and I might be getting some of these details incorrect, but who cares? My producer seemed to have access to go backstage and he met Jeff and Jeff says, I want to meet the hosts. I would even like for them to open the show for me to introduce me which is a very smart move for a comedian to ask the local radio guys who some of the audience might know to warm it up a little bit and act all buddy, buddy. And then you could win a part of the crowd. Not like we were famous or anything, but yeah, some people in the crowd may have heard Jeff on our show and yada, yada, yada. They're there. They know us. They know Jeff. Jeff knows what he's doing. So he invites us backstage. This is the story. God, was that a slow beginning? Sorry. So we get backstage and there he is smoking a joint. He had a pad of paper in his lap, and he's just writing. He's writing jokes that he's about to tell. He's a true natural. Not to say he didn't have a set that was pre-written, but he was just writing and writing and writing and writing. And it was so cool to see his process, smoking some weed. He had this 20-year-old girlfriend who was incredibly stoned, real pretty, real nice, didn't say a word. She looked like she was so high that she was scared, but still happy to be there. And then another comic in the room, a guy named Tony Hinchcliffe, who's a pretty good comic too, was going to open the show. So it's my co-host, myself, Jeff, his really high young girlfriend, and this comedian, Tony Hinchcliffe, in a room the size of the bedroom I grew up in, which all of you know was small. And Jeff immediately welcomed us with warmth. Just a nice guy. Thanked us for having him on the show earlier. Offered us food. I think I declined. Offered us some weed. I declined. And then uh, offered us a drink. I think I had a Pabst Blue Ribbon because I'm fancy, tall can. And just sat there shooting the shit with Jeff Ross. And slowly it started to feel normal. That's the weird part. That's how down to earth this guy is. Slowly it started to feel like, yeah, this is where I should be. When really, come on, what the hell am I doing backstage? So he goes, you just get out there and say anything. And then I'm going to roast you a little bit. So the place was packed. Hinchcliffe opened the show and then we came out on stage and just said, hey, are you ready for your headliner? Put your hands together for Jeff Ross. And everybody by that time is really excited. The great comedians come on a little bit late. They want you to get a little more alcohol in your system, warm you up. So by the time they get out there, you are ready to rock. And they were ready to rock. It was a good crowd. He kept us up for about two more minutes of just insulting us, which was wonderful. And that's what his show became. He brought people up from the audience and just started roasting them too. And then afterwards, had a chance to shake hands and say farewell. Now, Jeff Ross, at that point, that's probably 2010, this story, 2011. I don't know. But to see what's happening right now on Comedy Central, I think a few podcasts ago I was ranting about how bad Comedy Central is, and it is. It's really bad. However, the show's good. Roast Battle is a success. 
He was going city to city, just bringing up some no-name comics to battle each other. Yet, none of it is harsh. It's weird that they maintain such a friendly atmosphere on this show, and he has a panel of his fellow comics as the judges. The crowd is wild. I mean, the crowd is into it. It's like a rock and roll style crowd, and he just gets two comics you never heard of to go back and forth and back and forth saying mean things to each other, yet there's a lot of love on stage. Why? Because Jeff Ross set the tone. He's a loving guy. It's very weird to describe. That was Don Rickles' nickname, Mr. Warmth. And I know it was a joke to call Don Rickles Mr. Warmth, but in a weird way, wasn't he? Rickles is the king of insult comedy, the king of roasting. Rickles could say anything about anybody's race, anybody's ethnicity, anybody's religion, and he kind of just brushed it off like, that's Don Rickles. That's okay. Like, it was never offensive if Don Rickles said it because it was all in the name of comedy. That's like Jeff Ross. There's not a lot of comics like that anymore, though, who retain that charm while they're saying really awfully mean things. So it's watchable. That's a long recommendation for roast battle. And also a really sly way of making myself sound cool like I go backstage. Yeah, I go backstage at the House of Blues sometimes. No big deal. All right, I started with attacking the Marin moms, those fancy, wealthy Marin moms who are sometimes late to their soul cycle classes, so they have to drive through humans and trees and stop signs and red lights. And some of them just drive through buildings and park their cars where they want because, hey, who cares about a parking ticket? We got the money for that. And I'll end with these Marin moms as well. Once again, this is not a brutal attack on these women. If anything, we're just shining a light on reality. So I once discussed my top 10 favorite comics. One of them was Tommy Davidson from In Living Color. Either you know him or you don't. Google him, Tommy Davidson. See if he looks familiar. But I remember his set. He's one of my favorites because one set he did at the comedy store in La Jolla, it went until 1 or 2 a.m. I remember he just went on and on and on and on and on. And at one point he did a whole bit about white moms, how they discipline their toddlers. And he said he was at the grocery store and he heard an aisle over a mom squat down, put her head nearly into a stroller and say, hey, 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 I don't want to hear any more of that. Okay, Devin, I thought we had an agreement. You know, she's talking to like a two-year-old and Tommy Davidson was basically saying, that's not how my mom was. No, no, no. But white women, how they speak to their children, you know, I thought we had an agreement in the car that you would not have a meltdown in the grocery store. And he made it really funny. I'm not just going to break it down, but you know what I mean. Tommy D made it really funny. And then it came to life. In reality, this summer I was going to a park in Corte Madera. It was going to be the first day on the swings with little nine-month-old Mila. First day on the swings. And as we were coming into the playground or jungle gym or swings area, whatever it is, I heard this mom. And I'm not exaggerating this. I'm not making it up. But I heard this mom as she was leaving with her kids address them in a way that made my skin crawl. I don't know why. It just struck me as so weird. But the boy, maybe two years old, and the girl, maybe four years old, were not getting along. You could just tell that there was some tense energy at the playground with this lady's kids. And the boy is singing a song. He's just singing a song the way a little two-year-old might sing a song. And the girl is so frustrated. She's so irritated. Screaming, Mom, make him stop singing that damn song. Come on, Mom. And then the mom crouched down. And she looked at the son and said, Skylar, 
Can you understand that Anastasia is having a stressful day and maybe does not want to hear you sing? And then she looked at Anastasia and said, Anastasia, can you understand that Skylar is just expressing himself through music? And I almost fainted. I thought, holy shit, Tommy Davidson is right. Not all white moms, of course. Come on, not all. But this lady was exactly who he was talking about. This lady said to Skylar, two-year-old Skylar at the Corte Madera Playground, Anastasia has had a real stressful day and she's going to need you to keep it down. And then she pivoted and looked at Anastasia and she let her know that Skylar's allowed to sing because it's just a form of self-expression. In no way could I see myself remaining that composed and using such direct, complete sentences. Now, I guess it's the right way to parent. Maybe some people would tell me. No, you got to really explain it and lay it out there like that. But she was speaking to them like adults, like they were all at happy hours. Very weird. I don't know. We're all learning as we go, right? But something about that style of parenting, I just went, nah, nah, no, 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 no. You tell the kid to shut up, right? Hey, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe not with the F word. But Skylar, if he's singing the same verse of a children's song over and over and over again, do we have to say, yeah, he's just expressing himself. And if Anastasia is so pissed off, do we have to honor the fact that she's having a stressful day? I don't know. Sorry to end this podcast like such a jerk, but maybe there were a few moments that were a little nicer. All right, I'm done here. You can follow me on Twitter if you like, at jrosenberg957. I appreciate you making it to episode 30. This episode, it's now in the books. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 